urge you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 will be our starting point this afternoon as we study from God's precious and divine word. As always, it's a joy and honor to be back with the folks here at Lakeside. We thank you often, we thank you fondly, for the most part. We'll get to that eventually. But it's good to be back with all of you. It's good to be back with David and Michael and good to meet Josh and his family and all their families. I want to begin tonight by asking a simple question. How do you calculate, how do you determine the success of a local work? That's hard to calculate and determine, isn't it? Perhaps there are some good ways to do that, some bad ways to do that. Let me suggest a few bad ways as an introductory way tonight. What about attendance? Look at all the folks that we have in attendance, and therefore, that equals success at the local level. Is that true or false? Well, that's could be false. It might be true, but it could be false. I know of groups that number 250 to 300 that are faithless and zealous. And I know of groups that are very small, but they're full of faith and they're full of zeal. What about the size of the offering? Did you realize that there are some who write a big, fat check and thinks that it alleviates their responsibility for everything else? There are some congregations that have a really good, sizable offering. It may indicate a generous spirit on behalf of the brethren. It may not. I know of some places that struggle financially, but they are full of faith, full of vim and vigor. What about the building? Look at the building that we have, the, the big palace that we have. That surely is an indicator that that local work is a success. And again, that is not necessarily true. What about the fact that we are organized? We have elders and we have deacons, and that surely indicates that this local work is a success. As I've said before, as you've surely heard before, every local church ought to have elders and ought to have deacons, and they ought to be working towards that all of the time. But there is something worse than not having elders and deacons, and that is having unqualified elders and deacons. You're asking for a disaster on that level. What about the preacher that you have? I think you guys have a pretty good guy here in Brother McKibben. But you know that some people wear their preacher as a status symbol. We were able to snag Brother so-and-so, and that makes us a success on a congregational level. That is not true, my friends. What I want to do with you tonight is to think about three of these one-anothers that do help calculate and cause success on a local level of a congregational level. I want to begin the book of Romans chapter 12 and verse 10 where your Bibles are turned to. This is in the midst of several short passages, several short characteristics of successful Christians. In verse 10, be kindly affection one to another with brotherly love and honor preferring one another. I want to think about that just for a few moments. We ought to be preferring one another. I want you to think about this in two different ways with me, this preferring one another. We ought to have a preference for each other. When we have an opportunity to be with God's people, we need to be with them inside or outside of this building. You and I need to have a preference to be with God's people. There's obvious reasons for that, is there not? Did you know that the wise man Solomon wrote in the book of Proverbs 13 and verse 20, He that walks with wise men shall be wise, but a companion of fools shall be destroyed. This building is full of wise 
faithful people. I ought to have a preference to always be with you as often as I can. Now Paul chimed in in the book of 2 Corinthians 5 in verse 10 and on down through the other areas that we ought to be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt what? They corrupt good morals. We need to have and spend time with God's people. Have a preference for God's people. They will help you get to heaven. But think about it this way also. Not only to have a preference to be with God's people, but also to put them first. To put others first. Now you and I both understand there are times that I personally may be struggling and need to spend some time on myself. But by and large, most of the time, I need to be putting other folks first. And that begins with you as my family. Do you recall in the book of Galatians, chapter 6, and in verse 10, that we ought to do good unto all men, especially to those who are of what? Those who are of the household of faith. That's you, and that's me. I need to be able to put you first. That's what it means to prefer. Now, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 8, we're not going to read all those verses for sake of time tonight, but I remind you, in that context, Paul says that you ought to have the mind of who? You ought to have the mind of Christ. And what was the mind of Christ? The mind of Christ was that He was selfless and not selfish. Jesus put others first all of the time. He put Him first while He was living. He put Him first while He died. He put Him first while He rose. He was putting others first as He ascended. And today He still puts you first as He serves as our intermediator and our intercessor. When we prefer each other, we want to be with each other. And we want to put others first. When you have a local group of God's people, whether it's here at Lakeside or in Florida or Tennessee or Indiana or wherever it may be, you're going to have a good chance at being highly successful as a local group of God's people. But that's not all. Also in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 2. Ephesians 4 and in verse 2. I'll remind you that in verse 1, the Bible encourages us to walk worthy of the vocation that we have been called. In verse number 2, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. Let's think about that one just for a few brief moments. Forbearing one another in love. There are many versions and translations that take off the four and simply say, bear with one another. I love the fact that Paul and the Holy Spirit saw a fit to put verses like Ephesians 4 and verse 2, also, by the way, Colossians 3 and verse 13, to bear with one another. Have you ever thought about what the Apostle was trying to say here in Ephesians 4 and verse 2 and Colossians 3 and verse 13? This is it. That God created us as individuals. Not a one of us are the same. We don't have the same fingerprints. We don't have the same DNA makeup. We are not robots created by God, forced to do what He wants us to do. We are all individuals. And therefore, we are all different. We have habits. We have idiosyncrasies. We have ticks, not of the animal sort. We have all sorts of little ideas that we have in our mind that other people may not like. I know with full assurance... 
But I have habits that some folks don't like. You don't have to list them, but I'm pretty sure that there's some things that I do or have done that you just don't like. But that's a two-way street, by the way. There may be some things that you do, some idiosyncrasies that you have that I may not necessarily like, but they're not sinful. So what are we going to do about that? We're going to bear with each other. And by the way, you notice there in verse number 2, in the name of what? In the name of... Because we love each other, we bear with each other. Let me see if I can give you an example. Let's just say that there's a large section of people in this room that like a blue team. And there's a small, very small section of folks in this room that like the red team. Is that okay? Is it a sin to like the blue team as much as I would love to say yes? The answer is no. But is it a sin to like the red team as much as you would like to say no? The answer is yes. The answer is no. What are we going to do about this? We're going to bear with each other. What if the people on the blue team decide to handcuff the guy on the red team and force him to wear blue colors? What are we going to do then? We're going to bear with each other, are we not? Now, on a more serious level, there are some habits that people have that I just don't like. And there are some habits that I have that others don't like. We just bear with each other. Now, let me say this so we can be as clear as we can. When it comes to doctrinal matters and matters that God has already determined for us, there is no room for forbearance. What God says is what He says. What the Bible says is what the Bible says. But do you know, as you think about the chapter of Romans 14, But there are some topics, there are some subjects, there are some ideas that people have that are not black and white in the Bible, and one person may have a thought on it, another person may have a differing thought on it. There's no room in those opinion areas, by the way, to draw fellowship-type lines. Some people do that. And what they have lost is the ability to bear with one another when there is that difference. That's what Romans 14 is all about. Living together when there are matters of indifference. Now, if you further on in Romans 15, 1 and 2, which, by the way, really belong with Romans chapter 14, the Bible says that we then that are strong ought to do what? To bear the infirmities of the weak. Those who are strong bear the infirmities of the weak. That sounds like those of us who are really healthy to take care of those who are not so well. That's a good thing to do. That's not what the text is about. It also may sound like that those of us who are spiritually strong ought to care for those who are spiritually weak. That also is a good thought. But that's not what Paul is talking about there in Romans 15, 1 and 2. What he's talking about, those who have a strong opinion on a certain subject need to learn to live and dwell peacefully with the ones who have a weaker conscience. And that's where verse 2 comes in. So that every man may be able to do what? To please his neighbor, and not himself. When you have a local group of God's people who are preferring one another, they love to be with each other and to put each other first, and they've learned to live and dwell together in unity, even though there may be some differences of opinion on certain matters, you have a great recipe for success on a local level. But finally, also in the book of Romans chapter 15, And in verse number 14, Romans 15 and verse 14, Paul writes, And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, 
that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to do what? Able also to admonish one another. You might highlight the word able in that verse. That means I have to learn how to admonish somebody. I need to be taught. I need to learn how to do that. There's a fine art to admonishing somebody. Now the question always is, what is admonishing? Admonishing. What is, what is this all about? You ask this in a Bible class setting. Most of the time the answer is it's teaching. Now that's partially true. Admonishing is teaching. Admonishing is instruction. But there's an element of warning in that admonishment. As an example, you might consider Colossians 3 and verse 16, that while we are singing praises to God, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Paul tells us that in so doing, we are teaching and what? We are teaching and admonishing one another. So there's a difference there between instruction and admonishment and warning. Think about some of the songs that we sing. There's a rainbow in the sky. That's a song of pure teaching about God's promise that He will never flood the earth again in epic worldwide fashion. But there's another song that I like, and I can hardly find it in song books anymore. Time, time, time enough yet. Oh soul, why be what? Oh soul, why be alarmed? You ever heard that song? At the very last of that song, it switches in the chorus from time, time, time enough yet. Oh soul, why be alarmed? To lost, lost, lost evermore. I don't know. If that's not a warning, I don't know what a warning is. That's a warning to you and to me. Don't waste your time. Sometimes, at a local level, there's somebody who loses their way, somebody who strays away from God's Word, and they need a warning. They need some admonishing in order to get them back on the straight and narrow. Nobody likes to be admonished. Do you like to be admonished? Did you wake up this morning and say, oh, it's, it's Sunday. I hope somebody admonishes me today. I doubt it. I doubt also that there's anybody in this room who woke up this morning and said, boy, I hope I get a good chance to admonish somebody. I hope not. But it's a necessary part of life. And it's a necessary part of a successful life of a local group of God's people. Consider some of the folks in the Bible who admonished others. In Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, as you probably know as good Bible students, Paul had caught wind that Peter had withdrawn himself from mixed company of Jews and Gentiles. You're very familiar with this. And Paul caught wind of this, and he said that when I got to Antioch, what did I do? I withstood him face to face. That's instruction, that's teaching, but there's some warning in there as well that you can't do that, Peter. How about another example from the Old Testament? What about Second Samuel chapter 12, really the first whole portion of it? You know what happens in chapter 11, right? The man after God's own heart, is quickly overtaken in a fault with a woman named Bathsheba. By the end of the chapter, the man after God's own heart was a fornicator, he was a liar, he was a deceiver, and he was a murderer. And if you glance at the very last sentence of 2 Samuel chapter 11, but this thing that David had done displeased the Lord. He was always watching. So what does God do? He sends Nathan the prophet to go and to try to straighten things out with David. He tells him this story about a man who stole another man's ewe lamb instead of taking from his giant flock. What did David think about that story? Do you remember? David was incensed. He was angry. He said, you show me this man and he shall be punished. Now there are some profound passages 
on the pages of inspiration, but this one for me takes the cake. When Nathan has to look David in the eyes and say, David, thou art the man. You're the one. You're the one who stole the land. That was admonishment. That was warning. Sometimes, as much as I dislike it, I need admonishment. I need somebody who loves me enough to come and to say, Larry, I'm concerned about you. Perhaps I'm concerned about some things that you're teaching or some ways that you're behaving, and I want to talk with you about that. And if you don't stop these things, you're going to end up in a place that you don't want to be. I need that sometimes, but you need that sometimes as well. Recall in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and verse 17. All Scripture. You can quote that probably, can't you? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is what? And it is profitable. What's so profitable about the Scriptures? What is it profitable for? It is profitable for perhaps instruction in righteousness. It's profitable for doctrine, but also it's profitable for correction, admonishment. When I go to admonish somebody, I take this with me. I say, brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, there's some things that's going on. I'm going to put my finger on the things that are going on. We need to talk about it. Because I love your soul, we need to talk about it. What I have found over the years, a local congregation that's willing to admonish from time to time those who are not living by the Word of God succeed what they don't, what some folks don't understand is that Bible discipline, whether it's admonishment or all the way through the withdrawal of fellowship, is a tool for growth. I need to understand to believe that. In local flocks, local flocks like this one that I know from times past will from time to time have to admonish somebody. And they'll do it for the good of the one who is lost. When you have a group of God's people, you don't care about gaudy numbers or gaudy places or gaudy preachers. But they're more concerned about preferring one another. They're more concerned about forbearing with each other and about helping each other stay on the straight and narrow. What you got is a great recipe for success. And I know from experience, as does David and Josh does now and Michael as well, that this group, as I, as I feel at least, excels at these three areas. And I encourage you to continue in it. I talk about you quite often, not by name, but I tell you, I tell, there's a congregation that I know that I was privileged to work with that does these things, and they're thriving. And so I encourage you to keep up the good work, referring, forbearing, and emotion.